most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Good evening. This is Orson Welles. It's a two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. All right. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of Orson Welles Commentaries. Here we have the fifth Isaac Woodard uh, presentation, and suppose the last one we'll see if Orson mentions him in any, any further episodes. I realized last time I didn't really introduce our team. We just started talking and went into it, but I'll introduce our team again really fast. So we have uh, our... Orson Welles historian and specialist Vincent Longo. And Vincent, um, your book is coming out soon? Or what, what, what is the ETA on that now? I figured, I thought it was in the fall or something. Yeah, no, it's not in the fall. It's, uh, it'll be early next year. Yep, okay. so a little, little small delay is, you know, I apply for jobs and finish a dissertation and, you know. Uh, kind of been doing this here, podcast. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this, this is a labor of love. This is a labor yeah. of love. But yeah, a little little delay, but it is coming. We um, the big the big news there is that we got um, tentative agreements from a variety of archives, including UCLA and Indiana University and the University of Michigan's archive to uh, create a digital uh, database of all papers related to Heart of Darkness online. Oh, so nice. we are, you know, wow. usually to do research on a heart of darkness, you would need to go to all these places. We're bringing them all together as a sort of a reunification project. And so I was really excited that everybody's super on board and super enthusiastic about it. So soon everyone can do research on heart of darkness. Well, that's really cool. Great job, Vincent. That's wonderful to hear. Kathy, uh, let's turn it over to you. So Kathy, uh, you, you're uh, we're still uh, waiting on volume two of the lost Benny yes. scripts. So, so it is it is it is in process and um, and the plot continues to thicken on the other project. Uh, Laura Leibowitz, our uh, um, our beloved uh, pre uh, lifetime president of the uh, Jack Benny fan club, is in possession of uh, several manuscripts um, of that uh, uh, in different phases of completion. And so um, it's interesting. I still haven't seen any of it yet, but she's putting out tantalizing little clues right. about wonderful things she's finding. And so- um, Are you gonna are you gonna get access to all of that as far as you know, or? Hopefully, hopefully. I mean, I volunteer, you know, that's, uh, I'm very happy to be involved. However, she and however, Laura and the Benny estate and Maurice Zolotow's estate uh, would like me to be so I will I will so hopefully that that is such a fun exciting story I love that that, that we're closer than ever to maybe getting some more of Jack Benny's thoughts and and his writings out there so that'd be wonderful uh, Terry um, what's up in your neck of the woods are you uh, I, I, I don't I can't remember where we're at with uh, Imaginary Theater and whether you have a new episode heading our way or, or where you're at with that? We are working on the last episode of the first season, uh, which is actually which is a two-parter, two right? And uh, I just checked my schedule. We've been working on this episode for more than two months. Uh, it has been 
a bear to um, to uh, wrestle into shape. But uh, every time you ask me this question, I say the same thing, which is I hope we'll get it out before the end of this month. Yes. Uh, but as the clock continues ticking, I, I'm uh, a bit dubious. But uh, we will finish it. It'll get done, and uh, and I will happily tell you all about it when we get there. And One you, of the challenges and... has been I'm ca working with um, uh, a couple of ch uh, children. We haven't even cast them yet, but right. getting those parts right uh, is is part of the the difficulty. Part of the difficulty, yeah. And and you were last we talked to us. This has morphed as we've gone on. This has been kind of a little mini series within our series, right? <laughs> of of how Terry is proceeding on this two part episode is. Yes. <laughs> but I think I heard at one point that you were going to present them both at the same time, and then you then you talked about it and thought, well, what if we present one when it's ready, and then the next part people would wait for, and it would come out later. I kind of like that idea myself, but. Where are you at now with that? Is that how it's going to be? Or? I think I am going to do it that way, but I'm going to finish both parts before we start producing part one. And then when part one is done, we will put it out and then I'll continue working on, on part, part two. two. Yeah. And, and you know, then it'll, it'll get up shortly after that. And, and part two, I also thought I heard you say that part one was going to be the end of the season and part two is going to be beginning of the following season sort of thing. Yeah, I'm less inclined to do that now because given that people just listen to these things whenever, I don't know that there's any logic to doing it. It's If it were being broadcast right. over the air, uh, that would be different. But well, since these see, are, but we would play it up as the big premiere of the second season and and the second half of the first part uh, that ended the it was the ama amazing climax of the first season, and so it would be this amazing buildup. Well, okay, <laughs> all right. Well, I, that makes good sense. <laughs> there you go. And, and my question yeah. for you, Daryl, is how excited are you about the Beatles documentary? And how? what are you going to do if they release it on three different nights? What are you going to do in the space in between? Uh, I'm going to sit there and stare at my set, just waiting for the next episode <laughs> to come on. It'll, it'll be like binge watching, but with this huge intermission section of the binge. I don't know. No, I'm looking forward to it. And especially now they just released uh, Let It Be, the uh, multi-disc set. Uh -huh. So out on Spotify, they have the entire thing. It like is incredible, the, the playlist. that they, I mean, It goes on and on and on and on and on. And it has the complete uh, Glynis, how do you say his name? Glyn, Glyn, Glyn Johns? Anyway, whoever it is. the Glynis Johns? Glynis Johns, there we go. It's, it's, it's his entire version that, that was has never been available before. Um, that is before the the Phil um, Spector uh, added wall of sound piece on top of everything. And so I was listening to that. I really liked that version because you can really hear the vocals come through. You can really hear the instruments and what, what who's doing what. And so it's kind of fun to have that whole thing. And so there's, he's probably got the last 14 tracks or his or something. And, uh, before that you get a redone specter version and and then some outtakes and things and various songs that haven't been Darryl, pardon me, I, enough, so i there i have to i have to apologize i misspoke glennis johns is a british actress you're talking about glenn johns the recording engineer right no i'm, not, I'm actually the british actress put this together <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. I'm talking Glenn Johns. There you go. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it's not a common name. So. <laughs> imagine if imagine if they had married each other. Glenn and Glennis Johns. And if they hyphenated their last name, it would be Glenn and Glennis Johns Johns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have a feeling I may just remove this whole front part. Of this <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, well, I gotta we, go we now. We're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm looking. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to let it be. It's going to be a great experience to to have that. Uh, it's called Get Back, I guess the uh, the new uh, Disney thing, and it's six hours long instead of the two hours of Let It Be that it was. And uh, it's supposed to be a much more positive view, and much more where you see them having fun in the studio, and and so that should be a blast. Um, and I'm just glad that it's preceded by this wonderful release of the album again. So there we go. Let's move on to our friend Orson. So uh, where we left off was on episode four. He was fairly disjointed in that episode. Uh, this episode, I, I felt like gets him back on track a little bit more and things. Um, certainly the, the last part of the episode is put together pretty well. And uh Let's go on to Vincent and give let him give us an update of where we're at and what's going on. Yeah, um, again, as as with last episode, there isn't much going on in the world of Orson Welles other than this. I think probably because he's trying to line up what are the next things he's going to do. Um, in this episode, though, you know, I um, what I want to talk about is. Um, his engagement with the letter from his, quote, ardent fan. Um, just to give a quick overview of the beginning of this episode, Wells um, mentions that there's a libel suit uh, coming from the city of uh, Aiken, and he begins by very clearly giving the story with uh, the correct facts as far as he knows them. He mentions Shull, he mentions Batesburg, to sort of like in one space clearly say this is actually um, what we know happened. Does he get Woodard's um, name right for the first time? He does not. No, he's still it's still Woodard <laughs> so though. He I, got I, everything Woodard, else straight, he but he still Woodward. gets the guy's name wrong. That's great. Yeah, I I well, we may never know why he does that. Um, but I you know again, I think it's uh, evidence of him not really knowing everything, or maybe he's because you think he would correct himself given he's been correcting himself over the last yeah. um, two or three episodes. I'm hoping um, that by the last of... commentary, he comes on and says, you know, his name is Woodard, and I've been saying it wrong for all these weeks and months, <laughs> but I don't think it's going to happen. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I think he'll be waiting. Um, but, you know, I do actually want to talk about what we talked about a couple episodes ago, which is right when this uh, Woodard case started, we spoke about how we hypothesized that Wells' situation would be so different if it was today and there was the internet, right? We were like, Oh, people would be spreading so much misinformation. It would, they'd be making up stories. Well, clearly in this episode from this letter, we get that very little has changed. And in fact, misinformation is still circulating, um, albeit not on social media, but probably from person to person in ways that confirms people's, you know, biases or what they want to have happened. And this, and this letter that Wells reads for the first time is really a negative letter. He mostly reads positive letters, things he likes, but here he actually uses it to really argue um, his point. And I, I want to mention the letter because I think it has some, uh, I wouldn't say universal, but it has some connections certainly to uh, different racial movements and um, social movements we have now, because essentially the letter uses the same argument, same rhetoric 
that we hear against Black Lives Matter or against, um, you know, police reform. Um, the quote artist. Before you get there, Vincent, I was just going to say, uh, I. I'm so glad you picked up on that because I thought the exact same thing when I thought, oh my gosh, what I what we laid out is times have changed and they've gotten so much worse in in a way on online and all of that. Then this letter is like a tweet that's a vicious tweet or a vicious Facebook post or whatever, and it and it totally struck me as exactly what you would expect to happen today, and it shows. Things haven't changed all that much, unfortunately. Anyway, but uh, go ahead, Vincent. You, you can continue on. Yeah, but no, you're right. I mean, the other thing he mentions is that this letter is not alone. So before I, you know, before I go into it, he says that we've gotten many letters, you know, and it's, it's unclear about how many letters they actually got, of course. The other thing is that it's also unclear, um, you know, just because somebody wrote a letter doesn't mean that they necessarily listened to his broadcast, even though he just, this person describes himself as an ardent fan. We know from other letter collections that exist, plenty of people wrote, uh, you know, about things that they never listened to, or they might even admit it. But, you know, right. who knows how many people from the South just wrote to Wells um, complaining. But in this case, I think it's important to mention the specific arguments against Wells's version of the story, which the person says is completely garbage. Um, this person mentions that we're great people in the South. We don't take anything from anybody. So, you know, how could that happen? And it's sort of like blanket, like, oh, we're good. You know, this person's bad. Um they mention, you know, this, the reverse racism argument that, oh, you're just giving an African-American a better shot because they're an African-American rather than taking the word of this, um, you know, this police officer. Then they mention, I think most um, easily refuted, thankfully, is that, well, what you really should be worried about is not police violence against black people. You should be really worried about black on black crime. And they specifically, you know, tells this fake story completely that Isaac Woodard got blinded from a scuffle with another African-American. We see that um, recurring as a way of explaining away or uh, sort of distancing the police uh, violence argument. But I think lastly and most um, pervasively and is that they make the argument that the North just has to leave the South alone, right? That's the argument that we talked about a couple episodes ago that we don't know for sure, but essentially was the argument that Scholl's own lawyer makes in his defense that this isn't a case about police brutality. This is a case where the North just needs to get out of the South business and stop bullying. And, and I think that argument to contemporary listeners probably seems the most unrelated to our current moment. Nobody, you know, certainly civil rights in general is an a argument that most right-minded people agree with. But I think the way in which it's couched um, still is true today. You know, Wells essentially makes the argument that well, what you're really afraid of, because he keeps mentioning like, oh, if we accept this argument, then we accept that all African-Americans should be able to have relationships with white people. And he's like, what? That's not even like discussed here. Like he, th you know, he he's not against that. But he says, you know, Isaac Woodard was just trying to go to his wife. He wasn't trying to, you know, uh, have a relationship with Shull's, uh sister or anything like that. But I think that's one thing that often comes up in the press more subtly is that there's this sort of fear of black sexuality that um, is undermining. And certainly it was part of this Southern racist attitude, but it still comes up now in the sense of trying to paint um, usually men in particular as delinquents in one way or the other, as people, oh, they were just criminals. They did drugs. They were, you know, sexually promiscuous. And we see that continuing today as well as sort of like a, uh, trying to give them a bad character as if that somehow makes up for this horrible, horrible, violent act 
um, which we see systematically and uh, unevenly against people of color. And so for me, I, I listen to this and, you know, usually we're like, well, this is so universal. It continues here. We see a, a really negative example of that, sadly. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Terry, your thoughts on this episode or? Yeah, it, it, it's hard not to focus on this letter. Um, it was, um, it, it was emblematic of the way many people thought and spoke and wrote. Um, and not only in the South, of course, but most particularly in the South, uh, these sentiments in many ways continue to this day. We like to think of ourselves as living in a more progressive era, and in many ways we do live in a more progressive era, but some of these deep-seated feelings uh, continue with us. Right. Uh, and, and Wells did, uh, I think, quite appropriately um, reply point by point to the issues raised by the letter writer. But as with so many other things, unfortunately, people's feelings aren't usually um, changed by reason or rhetoric. Right. And so while this was an interesting um, debate, if you will, um, I don't know if it, ha if it was consequential, except for this, which is that the NAACP said repeatedly that but for Orson Welles' commentaries on uh, the Isaac Woodard Jr. case, this matter might never have gotten the attention that it eventually did uh, nationally, and right. most particularly uh, with Harry Truman, who pressed his mm -hmm. Justice Department to intervene and prosecute uh, Shull. And even though that case also sadly uh, ended with uh, what I think we would all agree was a miscarriage of justice, uh, it did it did bring to light some of these things that otherwise would have been would have continued to be uh, ignored. And while uh, again, I think we would all agree that that just talking about these things and and even prosecuting the offenders doesn't uh, magically solve all these problems. Right. Uh, step by step by step, as was said in the the previous uh, commentaries letter writer, you know, these stones, one at a time, again and again and again, do eventually have an effect. Yeah. I did wonder at one point how much longer Wells would do this, you know, maybe in episode uh, three or four of this arc. Um, but I think it was, it was the right thing to do. It was a necessary um, campaign to to uh, persuade people not to forget. This is not something that we can ignore. And yes, not every Southerner is a racist, and yet, yes, not every racist is a Southerner. But let's not forget that we're talking about a human being here and his family and how it affects us all as, as human beings and members of this society. Uh, so I, I don't really have much more to say about this other than to applaud Wells for what he did. He did not have to do this. Right. Uh, he, he took some risks, both personally and professionally, and uh, I applaud him for his courage. Well, it Very probably, nice. I would assume, sped up the demise of his commentaries. I mean, the fact that they... And no, a sponsor is not going to want to... Yeah. Uh, you, sponsors only want to connect their names with happy news. You right. know, it was announced the next week, the very next week after this commentary. Uh, ABC told Wells, that's it, you're, you're done. And then... Okay you know, f five or six episodes later, they right. pulled the plug. Okay. So you found that out that they, yeah. so he didn't, at this that point, was he still wasn't cancer. Yeah. Wow. And, and who knows what pressure 
the network had and uh, right. you know, lack of sponsors, of course. That's was- it. They could, you know, sadly, they could hide behind the fact, oh, you don't have a sponsor. Right. We can't afford yeah. to, you know, carry you on uh, 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 as a sustaining show any longer. I wonder if that's why this is the last Woodard episode, right? They have, so he talks about Woodard in this episode. Five weeks in a row, he's talked about Woodard. Then they tell him he's canceled. Maybe they said, look, if you're going to talk about Woodard, you're going to be gone instantly. You're done. Otherwise, you, you've got six, seven more episodes, whatever it is, and, and you can do your commentary, but just can't mention Woodard. So it'll be interesting to see if Woodard gets mentioned at all or if it's or he's completely gone or what happens. Kathy, go ahead. Uh, just a small comment, sort of placing this in the context of media history. And indeed, um, when critics were complaining about um, radio broadcasting, network-dominated radio broadcasting, here is indeed one of its biggest failings in that being um, uh, networks not sort of controlling um, uh, of the schedule and what programming is going to be on, but pretty much leaving it up to sponsors to be able to be willing to sponsor a show here they're basically um uh, abc will be contributing to virtually censorship a blackout of information about this so as you all have been um praising orson wells that he didn't have to do this for making this effort this is the era before there there were no investigative journal very few investigative journalists the networks were not yet investing that much time. They were starting to, um, you know, Murrow and his boys over at CBS were starting to say the news is important, but the news still needed to be sponsored on radio networks. And so it really brings it home to me that um, how is this news otherwise going to get out? And uh, other than it was certainly being played up a lot in the African-American press, but a complacent North might turn a blind eye as well as the South, white South is saying, stay out of our business. Um, So I guess I'm just um, sort of feeling the frustration of how can we get this information out here? How can we make people care and appreciate what Orson was, had been trying to do? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, I want to go back for a second to the, to the letter we've been talking about. Um, People talk about how people live in their silos now and you don't get, it's all an echo chamber. And it just, I just thought this was a recent thing. It's always uh, these Orson commentaries show me how long this has been going on. I can totally, and and I've seen shots from uh, news programs where they go into say a diner somewhere maybe in the South and, uh, and uh, are talking to folks and how someone will say so. I can totally see them go into a diner in the South at this point in time and say, tell us what you think about the whole Isaac Woodard thing. And someone says, well, you know, I heard he had his eyes put out by by a black man that did this uh, before he ever ran into the police officer. And then somebody else says, yeah, I heard that too. And then pretty soon you get the whole group going and they're saying, yeah, yeah, they all heard it. Well, they all heard it from the same sources and they're just regurgitating the same thing, but somehow it carries more weight because, well, that person, that person over that table saying it, so is this person, this table. So it gives it more credence. And it's like, no, it doesn't give it any more credence at all. And unfortunately that's what we run into um, today, but instead of being at tables at a diner, it's 
being on, on Facebook together, or it's being on Twitter and, and and that sort of thing. So our diner is a whole lot bigger than it used to be. And, uh, and so there's more disinformation going further than ever before. So, um, and, and it, it, it's hard if you haven't been able to solve this problem uh, in 75 years, I don't know what the solution is going to be now. I mean, other than folks continuing to point out when they, someone's wrong and saying, well, actually it's this, and here's the, information and the source I have for my information, what's the source of your information to try and compare it. Um, I had a friend of mine, we were talking about the, uh, just yesterday, talking about the uh, the, re, uh, the deals going through the Senate and uh, the, re, uh, what is the, the reconciliation uh, things going through and how uh, his argument was that because there's I, my my talk was, you know, there's Democrats are supporting it. There's two Democratic senators that are against it. it if we can get those two people, we're, we're going to have to water it down to get those two two people on board. And he's and his argument back was, well, actually, it's not something everybody. Certainly, you guys make it sound like everybody wants this, but not everybody wants this. Certainly, the majority don't want it. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by the majority don't want it? Because of course, as we look at individual pieces of it. And usually 70%, 65% of the people are behind it. Well, his argument was that there are 52 senators that aren't behind it, with the, of course, the two Democrats and the 50 Republicans. And so that means that the majority are against it. And it's like, well, that's maybe the majority of senators, but not the majority of the country. But, but getting him to understand that piece is a tricky thing. So everybody uses their little piece of, of reality to twist it around. And, and, and uh, if, if they even have any facts, a lot of times there's no facts to it at all. I mean, the Isaac Woodard thing is a great example of that, that just someone says, well, I think it was a black person that did it. Oh yeah, that must've been it. So uh, interesting times back then, interesting times today that we live in. So anyway, anybody got anything else for this one or? Vincent, yeah, I got one one thing. Yeah, Go so and to build off of what you just said, Daryl, and what Terry was saying before, in particular, I do think that you know, he, um, you know, that not every Southerner is a racist, and every racist is not a Southerner. I think Wells right. um, is starting to realize that that is going to be the main argument here. I think he he foresees that that's you know, I, obviously he can't say that that's what the uh, Scholl's lawyer is going to do, but you can see in this episode that that becomes. Um, sort of the argument that he's anticipating. And we see that in, because in the past, in a couple episodes before, he really goes after the South. He's done it before with the, the KKK and he draw, talks about the Dixie line. Here, he doesn't do that. In fact, he seems to be making the argument that, you know, remember letter writer, we're not in the civil war. And in fact, if you were to go into that metaphorical diner, of course he doesn't use that, right. but um, you know, you would find out that even your fellow Southerners, which, you know, he even says like, you should be proud to be a Southerner. He's like really trying to appeal to this like Southern mentality. He's also saying like, we're all Americans and we should be proud of that playing in the right. nationalism. But he's saying that, you know, even many of your Southern um, uh, friends wouldn't agree that this is, that this is right, that this isn't right. about the South, that police violence is a bad thing. And of course, I'm sure he's totally right. But um, he keeps hammering that home and changing his tune in many ways for talking about the South as more of a blanket um, place for racial relations, which is in, you know, in part, of course, correct, but also doesn't reflect necessarily every person. And I think he at least tries to um, make an appeal in that way. Right. Good point. Good point, Vincent. And uh, something we need to keep in 
track of and I do too. I mean, because uh, there are some wonderfully uh, progressive people that are in, in the South and there are some wonderfully conservative people that are in the North. It's just, uh, and it just depends on the percentage and everything as to who wins elections and who doesn't win elections and all of that. So um, certainly there are, are wonderful people in all parts of our country. And because uh, I, I tend to think if I went and lived in the South, all of a sudden I wouldn't become an evil person. <laughs> it would just be me living in the South. So, right. And that's just the way it tends to be. So anyway, uh, I hope everybody enjoys this episode. I think it's uh, an interesting episode for sure. Um, and we didn't really mention about the, the last part of this episode and things is there anything anyone wanted to mention in the in the later parts of the episode or are we good with that terry you got anything else in the episode or no i think because this letter really dominated the that's the, that's enough yeah the his his focus and, and it did put a button on this on this arc and so it I, did it did and, and uh, uh, i like it for that i was just kind of I think all of us were, as I look around the room, it's like all of us were a little bit like, oh man, even back then they had the same. <laughs> Twitter still existed. No. Uh, anyway, it's good. And uh, enjoy, and we'll see you guys next time and see if, uh, if Orson changes directions and what he's going to do. I'm really, I'm probably more interested in, in hearing the next episode than I have been in quite a while just to see what direction he's going to go in. So um, we'll end it there. Maybe, if I can find my stop button. This is Orson Welles speaking. The place was Batesburg. Isaac Woodward thought it happened in Aiken. He was wrong. I've repeatedly explained Woodward's mistake and repeatedly apologized, but I broadcast his affidavit. Now the city of Aiken, having banned my movies, burned the posters in the streets and hanged me in effigy is threatening, believe it or not, to sue me for the sum of $2 million. Well, if I had all that money, honestly, I wouldn't mind owing it to Aiken for the pride of having finally put the blame where it belongs. The blame belongs, as I say, in Batesburg, Batesburg, South Carolina. It was Monday, February 13th, 1946. A minister and several workmen saw the police chief of Batesburg and a highway patrolman pouring buckets of water over the head and body of a soldier who had been arrested the night before. What the policemen were washing away was blood. And between each bucket, they stopped and asked the soldier, Can you see yet? Each time, the soldier answered, No. The soldier was a Negro. We know now that his name is Isaac Woodward, and that police chief, the police chief had beaten him the day before and blinded him with a blackjack. When I stumbled on the story several months later and brought it to public attention on this program, the name of the guilty policeman was unknown and it looked as though it always would be. I promised to get that name. I have it now. The minister and the workman provided our investigators with one clue and there were other clues. All led to a single man. All clues led to Mr. M.L. Shull, chief of police in Batesburg, South Carolina. Now we have him. We won't let him go. I promised I'd hunt him down. I have. I gave my word I'd see him unmasked. I have unmasked him. I'm going to haunt Police Chief Shull for all the rest of his natural life. <clears throat> Mr. Shull is not going to forget me. And what's more important, I'm not going to let you forget Mr. Shull. Now, here's a letter. 
Goes like this. Well, Mr. Wells, you've just lost yourself an ardent fan. That little speech you made on the radio about that Negro got his eyes poked out, did it? You don't know a thing about this case, and I'm quite sure I heard the correct side of the story, being as I live in the very state in which it happened, and proud of it. But it seems that the Yankees always have to pick on somebody about something, and especially the South. Well, I'm going to put you wise for once. If the North would let the South alone a while and not try to bully them, everything would soon turn out just right for everybody concerned. We want the Negro to have a fair chance. We don't believe that the two races should mix, however, but it seems that the North is trying its darndest to make a mulatto nation of the whole South. Well, it isn't going to work. I believe that we would all die fighting, men and women side by side, before we would let a calamity like this happen to the glorious homeland of gallant men and their women who have certain well-founded beliefs and never take anything from anybody. Now to get back to that story. I've been around associating with the policemen around aboutts, and I happen to know that the Negro who received the eye injury was extremely insolent, very unruly, tried to make a getaway from a police officer. Seems you all want to give the Negro a better chance than you would a white man. And my dear man, I shall present a startling fact to you. The policeman in question did not cause the eye injury to the Negro. It was due to a fight the Negro had with another Negro. And he is trying to put the blame on the officer so he will draw a pension. Think that over, Mr. Orson Welles. Doubtless you have lost quite a few fans from that little dramatic speech you made, so full of emotion and tragic tears for the man. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Signed, your former fan. Well, we've been getting a lot of those anonymous letters since we broke the Isaac Woodward case in this program. Let this answer answer them all. Dear former fan, you say the North is bullying the South, and if the Yankees would stop always picking on somebody for something, everything would turn out just right for everybody concerned. I'm afraid you're missing the point. Batesburg isn't another battlefield of the Civil War. Besides contending over the scandal of Isaac Woodward, aren't the blue and the gray. They are the right and the wrong. And on your side of the Mason-Dixon line, as on mine, most of the people are on the right side of that argument. Of course you're proud to live in South Carolina. You ought to be. But I think you'll find that most of your neighbors in South Carolina are ashamed of Mr. M.L. Shull, a police chief who beat out the Negro soldier's eyes with his blackjack. I'm proud to live in America, but I'm ashamed of Chief Shull and his blackjack. I'd be ashamed of him if I was a citizen of Tibet. Isaac Woodward was not involved in a conspiracy to make a mulatto nation of the South. He was just taking a bus trip to Winsboro to meet a young woman who belongs to his race and who bears his name. But Isaac Woodward never got to see his wife. He'll never see her. Never. Isaac Woodward is blind. Why? Because the North is bullying the South? And my dear former fan, your startling fact about the eye injury, those are your words, eye injury, being the work of another Negro is meaningless in the face of Chief Shull's own confession. He did it himself. And even Chief Shull doesn't claim he was defending the sanctity of white womanhood. Even Chief Shull doesn't claim he was keeping Isaac Woodward 
from marrying his sister. Well, that's enough of that for now. We'll come back to Mr. Shaw next week, and the week after that, the week after that. My time remaining is dedicated to a man whose name we'll never, never know. Before the year now generally called Munich, perhaps the season is so earlier, there was a treasure hunt in Paris. Please visualize the celebrants, not as Parisians, but as notables as they mostly were of a very publicly gay wing of international society. You may know that a treasure hunt proposes a number of unlikely quests, and when the list is imaginative, it can be fun. Here was a treasure hunt for the history of the game. There was no limit to the mad invention of it. One item was something unmentionably intimate, that's all I know about it, a possession of the mistress of a cabinet minister. Another prize was a legal certificate of marriage binding between a couple who hadn't considered any such solemnity. There are a dozen more of these treasures, all as extraordinary, and for a climax, nothing less than a cigar still smoking lit at the flame which burns forever by the tomb of the unknown soldier. Now, decency expects of a tomb that it guard for the lifetime of stone what was once the habitation of the spirit of man. The conscience of the world defends the memorial of those who, in the last wars in this, died for peace. You agree we catch a glimpse here of something worse than mere bad taste, picnicking on an old grave, something perverse, wickeder than any casual defilement of God's image. Only another bad piece could make anyone laugh at a dead soldier again. Of course, whoever lit his cigar from that flame may have thought the unknown soldier wasn't anybody he knew. It's true there isn't anybody in particular to mourn for the man who was buried there, so everybody mourns for him. The mocker can't have known that he profaned his brother's grave. But how could he forget? The sense of man's brotherhood is all that can sustain the human spirit for the loss of God. And this man had no God. By what did he live? The loss of faith is the condition of despair, and the alternative to despair is the worship of Caesar. What's sure is that the mocking of sacrifice cannot survive elsewhere, but in that evil climate of the soul where fascism prepares its subjects. Very probably, the man with the cigar was one of these prefabricated pagans who rode the joyless carousel of the 20s and 30s, one of those, you know, who doubted if anything is ever really bad or really good. If the man with the cigar is alive, he may have changed his mind. It's possible he found something bad enough to fight. He may even think that something good is real enough to defend. I think we know these things, but never say them enough. Bad and good have been at war, God knows, since the first morning of the world. Men do the fighting. If they didn't, this planet would be nothing better than a zoo. Faith is the tinder of man's greatness. So long as he shields it from despair, he's going to keep the gift of fire. There is one choice, no more. One choice and no exemptions. Those who believe this recent war can be the last are those who won it. Those who lost suppose that war itself breeds without cure in the nature of all peoples. These are the same who fattened on this war. They are the same who plan the next one. The slaves doubt their kind's capacity to learn and change. The slavers curb with doubt the people's righteous will to abide by its own laws. They are all the same. We have this to be glad of. These who are of little faith, the blasphemers, experts in chaos, or the sick in spirit, 
These who can't, who won't affirm the plain magnificent decency of human folk, all such on this our brightening world are rallied in the shadows now under the banners of despair. Defeat is their profession and their destination. Victory rises even today before the men of faith. This last war might have been the last war. If it was, and only if it was, we'll know the world's first peace. But let's have an end to the old stalemates and manipulations. The people want a government of all their nations, the chance to know each other better, to visit neighbors and make friends. They want open borders. They want everything printed in the newspaper so that they know whether they like what's going on or whether they don't. They're tired, the people are, of secrets and spies. They're tired of striped pants. The people want their own diplomats and all these things the people are going to have unless they're cheated out of them, Paris notwithstanding. If free men who fought for freedom aren't going to be allowed to destroy fascism, if anything that looks like fascism is suffered to sit down among us, the cynics will be right again. An ordered world where everybody's free to prosper and improve is still a far-off dream. The Fuhrer gave his sway a thousand years. His doom is sure. He lost. But those who fought him know they may not win. That thousand years of his was a good guess. At least a thousand years waits on the chance of another war. Another war means worse than the leveling of all the cities. We know that. It means retreat, a setback longer than the quarter of a century wasted since the unknown soldier died for us. A thousand years is a long march. We are the ancestors of unknown soldiers who must go that bloody length again unless we who are weary of marching go on marching. Forward is the way, forward beyond peace on into the free world which depends on it. A free world means just that. We must refuse all substitutes. A free world depends on that refusal. Liberals have a lot to say nowadays about the danger of reaction. Reaction is no danger, it's a certainty. Maybe it won't amount to much, maybe it's going to be a tidal wave anyway. The answer isn't written in the stars, it's up to the democratic man. He must stand fast now. This time he daren't lose, or nothing will be left. Nothing even to start with. And they'll build a new war monument, not to the unknown soldier, but to the unknown cause. Maybe they'll keep an enigmatic little flame alight there to show where freedom died. But nobody will start a cigar on that sepulcher. Wouldn't even be funny. The alternative, of course, is civilization, a bookish and uneasy word, that civilization. Our languages will bear us fairer names for it when we've struggled closer to what we would describe. Peace, then, will go as unremarked as the free air. Peace, after all, is no more than the victory of the farm over the wilderness, as probable as that, no more hard-earned. But never think our work is over when we've won that peace. We'll know better. And even when the world is free... We'll know we've just begun. Here it is. Here is the peace, we'll say. Standing in the midst of it, like plowmen, content with the good order of their fields. Standing together, since mankind will be every man's family when the tools of war are put away for good. Here is peace. Here is peace, we'll say to each other, proudly, undismayed. Nobody will confuse it with a millennium. Then the abundance of the human spirit will be ready for harvest. And even the children will see that final peace 
is merely history's first important date. Now I see my time's up. Thank you for letting me to come to call. Please make a date for next Sunday at this same time. Until then, I remain as always obediently yours. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.